a little different format this week. That's just how it came to us in the computer. So, room room to write notes beside the verses if you need to do that. The title of today's sermon is Providence. Providence. Hmm. Before we turn to the text of today's sermon, let me first ask, what is providence? Do we understand what it means when God speaks about providence? So please, let's start in the epistle to the Romans, Romans 8, verse 28. It's almost like your Bible should automatically start right or open to right there, right? We've been there enough. Romans 8, 28. Most people do not associate the providence of God with the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign. And he rules this universe as a totally sovereign, potentate, powerful one. But what is the providence of God? Let's begin with the plans of God. Before the foundation of the world, or better yet, an infinite time before the foundation of the world, God made up his plans for this creation and for everything he was going to accomplish in history through the motions of his creation. And the end goal of his creation would be the glory of God. Isn't that a wonderful end goal? Everything God will have created and will have caused to happen in history will be to the glory of God. Before God started to create, he was already infinitely glorious. How everything he created and caused to occur in history might contribute also to his glory is a mystery which we cannot understand. But we should leave that concept up to God because only God is able to calculate with the concept of infinity. We can't. The plans of God are called the counsel of God or the decree of God. It's as if God took pen and paper and wrote down his plans in a gigantic book. Of course, God does not need pen or paper. He can record his entire counsel in his own memory and not forget every detail that he planned to do. The decree of God makes an interesting appearance in the prophecy of the revelation of Jesus Christ in the last epistle of the book. In Revelation chapter 5, we see a scroll that was sealed with seven seals in the hands of him who sitteth upon the throne. This scroll is the decree of God, which only the Lamb of God was allowed to open. Then the Lamb opened one seal after another, and history began to unfold exactly the way God intended it to unfold. The hands of God, operated by God the Holy Spirit, made sure that history began to unfold exactly the way God wanted it to unfold, according to the decree of God. That's called the providence of God. So if we can identify the counsel of God with the plans of God, then we can identify the providence of God with the hands of God. The plans and the hands. This is a simplification, but it makes it more understandable for our simple minds. In any sermon concerning the providence of God, we should keep in mind Romans 8.28. It reads, And we know that all things 
work together for goods to them that love God. To them who are the called according to his purpose. You think of that as providence? Actually, most of us think of this verse as a verse brought up to comfort those who've been hit with some kind of evil, like death in the family or some other disaster. I'm sorry to say you're then taking this verse out of context. If you look at the context where this verse is found, you'll see that the context speaks of an entirely different subject matter. There are four different ideas. The concept says, or the context says, the sufferings in this world are insignificant compared with the future glory because God is going to prepare something infinitely better than this world. One idea. Another aspect of the context speaks of us living in the hope of the promised redemption of our bodies on the last day. On the last day. Because God will keep us in his care and he will sustain us through trials in this world. Third idea, the context speaks of the Spirit of God making intercession for us in our prayers because we do not know how to pray what we ought. God intercedes for us so that His will is done. And finally, the context speaks of God's plan of election and the glorification of His saints. And he continues to talk about this subject all the way to the end of Romans chapter 11. In other words, the context speaks of the actions of God in this world. The actions of God in salvation. The actions of God in our lives. And the actions of God in the life hereafter. Let me run through those four again. The actions of God in this world. The actions of God in salvation the actions of God in our lives, and the actions of God in the life hereafter. It's all about the actions of God near the end of time. That's about providence. What is it? Providence is the universal, sovereign rule of God. The universal, sovereign rule of God. Therefore, when we read in Romans 8.28, we must understand it in the context of God's providence. Let's read it again, Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. The Greek word for all things does not always mean all things. But in this verse, because of the context where we find it, it does mean literally all things. When God says here in Romans 8.28 that all things work together, God is saying that the universal sovereign rule of God is upon everything that occurs on this earth for the sole purpose of benefiting only those whom God calls unto salvation according to his purpose. For example, look now a little further to Romans 8, verse 32. Romans 8, verse 32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, again the elect from, the, from verse 28, 
but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Here again, same word, all things refers to all things here on earth as well as all things in heaven. Therefore, we can say that the providence of God is the outworking of the divine blueprint which God decreed before he created this universe. He made it, the plan. He is working it out. Nothing occurs without his foreknowledge. Or in the words of Ephesians 1 verse 11, it is the outworking of, quote, the purpose of him who worketh all things after his own counsel. Sorry, after the counsel of his own will. Let me read that again. The purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his will. Now in the passage we're looking at today, we see an example of the providence of God. So please turn to 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. We're going to do a little historical review, although we've studied this a few months ago in, in our Bible study. Maybe six months ago already. You remember that Ahab was the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. And Ahab had married Jezebel, who was the daughter of the king of Sidon, a heathen king. Ahab was not allowed to do that. God had said that they may not intermarry with the heathen of the land. Because then they would begin to worship the gods of their wives. They would begin to worship the idols of the Canaanites. And what God had said certainly came to pass. Both Ahab and Jezebel were very wicked, and they worshipped idols instead of Jehovah God. They worshipped Baal and Ashtoreth, and almost the entire kingdom of Israel followed after them. As the king goes, so goes the nation. And that's a rule which applies in these days as well as in those. You can see it all around you. Still happening today, and it's not too surprising. In the kingdom of Israel, there lived a man by the name of Elisha, the Tishbite, which means he came from the city of Tishbe, which is on the east side of the Jordan River. Elijah had a holy seal for Jehovah God. Elijah cried to God that God would chasten Israel so that they would return to to Jehovah. We read in James 5, verse 17, that Elijah prayed fervently, and God granted him his request. God answered the earnest cry of Jehovah, sorry, God answered the earnest cry of Elijah, and God chose him to be the instrument in God's hand to turn this nation back to the worship of Jehovah God. To begin with, God sent him to King Ahab. We read about that here in chapter 17, verse 1. Now you have to realize that we have just met Elijah. He has just met Ahab, and apparently in their first meeting, this is how it goes. And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the sojourners of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As Jehovah God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, There shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. What a bold man was this Elijah. 
walk up to the king, the first time you meet him, and say, sorry dude, no water. Elijah spoke as if the power of God and the resources of heaven were at his disposal. He spoke as if the keys of the heaven had been given to him. There's a lot of truth there. When the Lord Jesus Christ sends us to the heathen, he never sends us to warfare on our own power. In fact, the keys of the kingdom of heaven have indeed been given to us. What is it? It's the preaching of the gospel. Elijah went to Samaria and he rebuked King Ahab. The king could have killed Elijah for speaking in such a threatening way, but Elijah did not fear the king. God was on the side of Elijah. And now we begin to see the providence of God in action. Let's read on. 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 2. And the word of Jehovah came unto Elijah, saying, Get thee hence, and turn thee eastward, and hide thyself by the brook Cherith, that is before Jordan. This verse clearly explains where the brook Cherith is located. Elijah came from Gilead, which was east of the Jordan River. Elijah traveled west to Samaria, obviously crossing the Jordan River, the capital city of Israel where he had to deliver the message to Ahab. Now God says to him, turn back, go eastward and hide by the brook named Cherith, which is before the Jordan. So where is the Cherith, where is Cherith, the brook Cherith located? It's before you come to Jordan. It's west of the Jordan. What does the Jordan River typify? In all the sermons that we've dealt with, the Jordan is always hell. Elijah, you do not have to cross the Jordan again. You did that once. That's enough. God does not require double dipping. Let's go on to verse 4. 1 Kings 17, verse 4. And it shall be that thou shalt drink of the brook. And I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. No, no, not the ravens. The ravens are unclean birds. They're unclean like pigs. Lord, you told us through Moses that the ravens are an abomination. The ravens are as bad as the heathen dogs out there. Lord, remember that Jezebel is one of those heathen dogs from the kingdom of Sidon. But God said, the ravens. God has made the ravens to become his servants, to feed Elijah. Can you see what God's doing? God's letting us know that he has a job for the ravens. Let's understand the spiritual meaning of this. The unsaved in this world are still God's servants. For God has put them in the world to be of service to his elect people. They're feeding us. They're giving us jobs. They're giving us money so we have food and raiment. The ravens are feeding us. And they're bringing us bread and flesh in the morning and bread and flesh in the evening. Can you see the providence of God in action still today? 
What Elijah did not know was that God was preparing Elijah for the next phase during these three and a half years that Elijah had to hide himself. God was going to have Elijah sustained by one of those heathen dogs from the kingdom of Sidon. God was training Elijah to see the providence of God. But in this passage of verses, verses 2 through 7, Elijah is commanded by God to hide himself by the brook Cherith. Let's read that. Starting at verse 5. So Elijah went and did according unto the word of Jehovah. For he went and dwelt by the brook Cherith, that is, before Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning, and bread and flesh in the evening, and he drank of the brook. And it came to pass after a while that the brook dried up, because there had been no rain in the land. You see the situation that's developing here? The entire kingdom of Israel is drying up. I think we understand that more in California than many parts of the world. The kingdom of Israel was drying up, no rain, severe drought. Nothing grows because there's no water, not even a little dew in the morning. The food supply is disappearing. Very soon, thousands of people are going to die because they have nothing to eat. But God is on the side of Elijah. God is arranging heaven and earth so that all the needs of Elijah are being filled. Elijah does not lack anything. That is providence. God is taking care of his servant. Now do you see Romans 8.28 in action? And we know that all things work together to, for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Did God miraculously change the character of the ravens to fulfill his purpose? Of course he did. The entire scenario is miraculous. It is one miracle after another. Can you imagine that ravens, scavengers, bringing you bread and meat every day, and you take it from them and it's enough for you? That's unbelievable. God says in Philippians 4:19. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. All of our needs are being filled out of the riches of this world, which means it comes out of the treasures of the Lord Jesus. He owns it all. And you could add many other verses to this because this is a biblical principle. God arranges the course of world history so that everything works together for the benefit of his saints. That's another definition of providence. But the benefit is only for his saints, not for all those whom God passes by. The Bible nowhere says that God loves everybody in the world. He loves only those that are his. How did Elijah become such a favorite? Was he always a saint? Did he have such a perfect childhood? No, not at all. God states clearly there is none righteous, no, not one. 
everyone naturally would be headed for hell. How then did Elijah become a saint? Well, you might ask, how did Elijah become saved? How did anyone in the Old Testament become saved? The answer is the same way anyone in the New Testament was saved. When the Lord Jesus said, No man cometh unto the Father but by me, in John 14, verse 6, did he really mean no one? That's precisely what he meant. No, not one. When God the Son came to earth, he came to save his people from their sins. Matthew 1, 21. He came to save his people from their sins. But who are his people? His people are all those he came to save. From the Old Testament time as well as from the New Testament time. All his elect are his people. We can't define his people as the Jews. But if you or I do not belong to his people, we would be in real trouble. Abel, Enoch, Noah, they all lived long before Abraham. They also belonged to his people. How were they saved? They were saved by grace, just like we are. The Lord Jesus Christ had to pay for the sins of Elijah as well as for our sins. The Lord Jesus Christ had to be a substitute for Elijah as well as for us. When the Bible speaks of Christ as our substitute, paying for our sins as our substitute, do you realize that his substitutionary atonement for our sins was infallible? His atonement was absolutely infallible. No mistakes. It could not fail. And therefore, his atonement was not for everyone in the world. If he had atoned for everyone in the world, then nobody would go to hell. Lord Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, and you probably know these verses, Matthew 7, 13, Enter ye in at the straight, or narrow, gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be, many there be, which go in thereat. Verse 14, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life. And few there be that find it. Christ was not a substitute for the many. What a pitiful Savior he would have been if he had to endure the wrath of God for the sins of the many, but the many would still end up going to hell. The Lord Jesus is saying in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, that many end up in hell. And few end up in heaven. These few are the ones for whom the Lord Jesus Christ was a substitute. As our substitute, he endured the wrath of God for the guilt of all of our sins. He endured the pains of hell in our place. And that is how all of our sins are removed from God's sight as far as the east is from the west. Now, if we claim to be among those few for whom the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified, how great is our gratitude? 
Well, that's not just an idle question. Many people think that if they go to church for an hour a week and maybe drop a dollar in the plate, that should be sufficient to show God their gratitude for what Christ suffered for them. And that God would be sufficiently pleased with such a sacrifice. Did the Lord Jesus not say in Mark 7, verse 6, Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it's written, this people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In other words, many people are going through their motions, but their heart is not with the Lord Jesus. They've lost their first love for Christ. They serve him on Sundays by their money in the offering plate, but that's where their love stops. The Lord Jesus not say in Matthew 24, verse 12, that the love of many shall wax cold. And the prophet Jeremiah gave us the example of how we must have a true love for Christ. We read in Jeremiah 15, verse 16, Jeremiah 15, verse 16, Thy words were found, and I did eat them. And thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart, for I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. In other words, the word of God must become so much our spiritual food that we become one with this word of God. And it becomes our all-consuming desire to know and understand it. And then it becomes the joy and rejoicing of our hearts. If we are truly called by his name, if we are truly among the elect of God, then this will be our utmost desire. And this will be our greatest joy. Can we say that of ourselves? How great is our gratitude? We can take Elijah as an example. He gave his all. He risked his life. We read that beginning in 1 Kings 17, verse 1, that he dedicated his entire life to the service of Jehovah. Is that what God expects of us? To dedicate our whole life to him? Is that the response of those for whom the Lord Jesus Christ gave his life? Is that the response of those for whom the Lord Jesus Christ suffered the torments of hell? Is that the response of those to whom God has given all things? That is indeed the gratitude that God expects from us. No, not only does he expect it from us, but through the mighty work that God the Holy Spirit works in us, that is indeed our response. I'm not saying this to put you on the spot or to put you down, but this is what the Bible teaches. The Bible says this is what a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ is like. You can read that also in Romans 12 verse 1. Romans 12 verse 1 reads, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Let's take Elijah as our example. But we run into another problem. Elijah's in hiding. Not only was he in hiding, but it was a command of God. Now we know that a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ is not hiding himself, but comes forth as a witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
A witness is one who proclaims the gospel to the world. Actually, the Greek word for witness is the same as for martyr. A witness must be willing to be a martyr for the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we have a contradiction here in the word of God? Can't be perish the thought. There are two different concepts of hiding in the Bible. One is hiding away for fear of men. That is not what a man of God must do. That is not how we should interpret the hiding of Elijah. Rather, God is painting a spiritual picture here of the second type of hiding that is used in the Bible. Hiding spiritually in Christ or resting in the finished work of Christ. Hiding spiritually in Christ or resting in the finished work of Christ. Remember that Elijah was hiding at the God-appointed place of rest. Go to the brook Cherith and I'll take care of you there. In the same manner, sinners flee for refuge to that appointed place called Calvary. How do I know that this act of hiding by Elijah should be interpreted spiritually? We know because the same Hebrew word for hide is used in the Psalms. Where God says through David, for example in Psalm 27 verse 5, Psalm 27 5, for in the time of trouble... He shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me upon a rock. Wait a minute. In the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me upon a rock. To hide me as pavilion and set upon a rock seems to be contradictory statements. Unless this verse is to be interpreted spiritually. This is exactly what happened to Elijah. Elijah was physically resting by the brook Cherith. So that, so that we see the picture of resting in Christ. Psalm 32 verse 7 expresses this clearly. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. Selah. When you see that word, S-E-L-A-H, in the Psalms, that means stop and ponder that. Take a moment, meditate. Thou art my hiding place. In Psalm 91, verse 1, we read, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Furthermore, God says in the New Testament, Colossians 3, verse 3, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. 
again, for ye are dead. And your life is hid with Christ in God. God says you're dead to the law. And now your life is safe and securely hidden with Christ in God. You don't need to fear the sting of the law. It cannot hurt you. You are now united with Christ. You are now one with Christ. This is how your life is hid with Christ in God. This is the hiding that Elijah did by the brook Cherith. But look now at one other aspect of the hiding of Elijah. The brook that was to give him water has a name that is associated with death. That name Cherith means a cutting off, a killing. How can this be? It's because the water of life meaning the true gospel, always includes the death of Christ. I come to you with one message, Paul writes, and that is Christ crucified. The true gospel always speaks of the atoning death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then the brook dried up. What? How can this fact be reconciled with the fact that the brook represents the water of the gospel? We read that, 1 Kings 17, verse 7. And it came to pass, after a while, that the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. The Hebrew words that have been translated after a while literally have the meaning, at the end of days. At the end of days. So let's look at the significance of that term, at the end of days. For example, the same two Hebrew words are used in Daniel 12, verse 13, where God says to Daniel, Daniel 12, verse 13, But go thou thy way till the end be, for thou shalt rest and stand in thy lot at the end of the days. Which means at the end of time. God says in 1 Kings 17 verse 7. There had been no rain. The brook dried up. That the end of time will come. After there has been a period of no rain. Which means no water. No preaching of the true gospel. God says in the New Testament very clearly that the end of time will come after a period of time that the true water of the gospel has been cut off. But God, through his providence, kept providing for the needs of Elijah until the end of days. Isn't that a great comfort for us who are living near the end of time? Even when the true gospel is dried up in the land, God will still provide for all the needs of all his children until the end of days. Psalm 46 verse 1 reads, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. This is a promise that keeps us going. Like Elijah, we can trust that God will supply all our needs according to his riches in glory 
by Christ Jesus. Christ will not abandon us. Christ is still in charge of everything in heaven and on this earth. Everything in world history is arranged by God for the benefit of his saints. That is called providence. Amen. Let's turn to the Lord of Prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this promise of your providence, of your care for us, and the knowledge that we know that you've given us, that all things work together for our good, for those who are the called, and it's all according to your purpose. Lord, we we recognize that, that it's all a gift from you, nothing deserved at all on our part. And yet you have freely given us such an amazing gift. Lord, give us that that confidence, that recognition that you will cause us, not help us, but cause us to persevere until the end of time. And Lord, we know that's not necessarily financially or health-wise or anything else, but it is the most important of all, it is the spiritual aspect of life eternal with you. That is that gift and that, that care that can never be taken away from us. Lord, we pray that this message will go forth powerfully and in a comforting manner to all those who face uncertainty and, and just the fears of this, present, of this present time. Lord, we pray again that your will be done and that we might see your hand in all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.